Welcome to the 387th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, KAIST. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a very special episode of COVID Calls. I'm joined by three students of KAIST, Sung Chan Choi, Jun Ha Yoon, and Jaehoon Kim for a group discussion on COVID-19 in Korea. And I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about this episode. Um, the three students are going to be actually asking me some questions about COVID calls and about my life during COVID. And then I'm also going to ask them questions. So I'm just having a moment of a technical difficulty there. I think we're okay now. Uh, and I'll be asking them questions as well, and uh, then we'll have an open conversation. So I'm going to take this opportunity here at the start of the program to invite the uh, students to introduce themselves. And I'd like to start with Sung Chan. Okay, uh, it is a very interesting time for every for all of us. Uh, my name is Sung Chan Cho, who is studying at the KAIST about the major in scope of computing, but also taking the minor course in STP. So it's very interesting and also unusual time for us. Thanks for joining our interviews, Professor. Thank you, Sung Chan. And Junha Yoon, could you introduce yourself, please? Okay, I'm the students of the KAIST as well as Sung Chan, and I'm currently majoring in electrical engineering and I'm also minoring STP, science, technology, and policy. And thank you for inviting us for this interview. And I think we have, I can hold it well. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Well, we have a lot to discuss. Thank you. And uh, last but not least, Jaehoon Kim, good to see you. Yeah, nice to meet you guys. Uh, I'm Jaehoon Kim. Can you guys hear me, right? Yeah, I'm a student on the Department of Chemistry. Uh, I'm very happy to come join here your COVID calls like it have been most amount 400 episodes right it's so many I hope you will continue those episodes until 1000 thank you for that wish I uh, appreciate that and just to give the viewers uh, just a little bit more context these students are also students who are in a class that I had the great honor to teach this fall at KAIST Risk Society and Disaster Studies. And so we've been working together now for several months to explore the history and policy aspects of disaster. And um, this is part of a final project for them to be working on the creation of disaster archives. So with that, I wanna just uh, give a few more preliminary comments and then we'll turn to our conversation, just a reminder, you can usually catch the COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time and just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID calls episode at 5 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can always keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. 
As of today, December 9th, 2021, there are 5,279,358 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Presently, South Korea is reporting 3,957 total deaths COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and we'd like to continue that now on COVID calls, and I'm going to invite Junha Yoon actually to give a presentation at this time. Junha? Oh, thank you for having me, Mike. And I just want to introduce you about the one obituary that projected by the Busan Ilbo that is on newspaper company in Korea. And this is kind of the archive for the that people who that, that died from the COVID-19. And well, I want to read it in Korean at first, and I just gonna summarize it in English after that. And so this is the episode where we are going to do. And you can also see in the chat chat box to where it is. And so let me gonna read it. So let's start from 누나만 찾다 하늘로 광주 891번 숫자로 남은 동생. Which means that the victim was finding the sister and passed away. And he's been the, he's died. And so he's the, treated as the 891 patient as the COVID-19. So this was kind of the obituary that we are going to remember the people who are patients of the COVID-19, not as the, the number, case number, but also the, who they were really were. So I got ready Korean. 해군복 차림에 건강한, 건장한 청년, 동생 하면 떠오르는 모습이다. 김경숙 씨는 어머니가 쥐어준 동생, 기련 씨의 사진을 오랫동안 간직하고 있었다. 너무 멋지다. 평생 바다에서 늙어라. 하며 동생을 응원했던 김 씨. 동생은 그 말을 따르지 못했다. 사진은 사라졌고, 거짓말처럼 동생은 누이 곁을 떠났다. 30대 때 대위 진급을 앞두고 전역한 기련 씨는 해군 복이 참 어울렸다. 엄마 따라 하늘로 올 1월 어버니 장례를 치르고 광주에 내려오자 희소식이 기다리고 있었다. 동생 상태가 호전돼 응급 중환장실에서 일반 중환자실로 옮긴다는 연락이었다. 광주의 한 요양원에서 지내던 동생은 지난해 12월 22일 코로나에 감염됐다. 광주 요양시설 첫 집단 발병이었다. 동생은 초기엔 다른 환자들에 비해 상태가 괜찮았다. 걸어서 구급차를 타고 병원으로 이송됐다. 그러나 폐에 물이 차 온몸에 호수를 다섯 개에서 여섯 개가량 달아야 했다. 고비를 넘긴 1월 19일 한 달여 만에 동생은 눈 깜빡임으로 누나와 대화를 나눴다. 다 나으면 맛있는 거 먹자 동생은 고개를 끄덕였다. 엿새 뒤 상황이 다시 악화됐다. 간병인의 연락을 받고 급히 뛰어간 1월 25일 자정. 동생은 이미 손쓸수 없을 정도로 상태가 나빠져 있었다. 두 번의 심정지가 왔다. 김 씨는 약물 투여와 CPR 동의서에 사인을 하며 중환자실 입구에서 밤을 지새웠다. 7시간 뒤 사망 선고를 하려는 의사를 따라 비로소 동생을 만날 수 있었다. 방호복으로 중무장한 채였다. So this was the first part of the, this orbitary named late fairy. And you can see the more, more things, more story about the patients and his family, then how they have to make the pass away of the, the one who, whose name is Kilhyun. And so this is, this try to remember the 
that who died in the COVID nineteen situation. Then, so you might not be understand Korean. So this was the kind of that who was the was the that 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 person and how are their families are doing and also that what they want for the COVID nineteen care because is they treat the most of newspapers and medias and other doctors are treat the people who died from COVID as the number that how what case that he was the how the numbering them so he's not 80, 891 91st the patient of the COVID nineteen so these kind of things are handling by the this newspaper company. And you can see the more patient story than how people died and what is their background story and what is their, they want to the other people or the government, how to treat them. You can see the things like there. Okay, so thank you for listening to my obituary presentation. Junhai, thank you for reading that and thank you for reading it in Korean and also for translating the meaning uh, for us in English as well. Just to get a little more context, um, is it is it not been conventional to have obituaries for COVID sufferers, those who've died of COVID in Korean newspapers? We, you haven't seen that very much? Yes, I think we don't have seen that very much because as you know, COVID, Korea was controlling very in highly distancing. So there were not much the COVID test cases in Korea. And so at first it was kind of seen the COVID patients as a criminal. So it's their fault to be the COVID victim. So so that's one reason I think that Korea did not help in the obituary for people. Let me invite Sung Chan and Jaehun. Um, any thoughts, comments about uh, what Junha was reading about this special project coming out of Busan? Uh, for me, actually, uh, before looking about the disaster disaster archiving, I didn't really know about the arbitrary in worldwide how they think and and then how they use for it. So in Korea, maybe we have a very little position of the arbitrary culture, but. I hope it is it is one of the good or nice way to be memori memorized and share with the memory from the our community. It's one of the good way, and we have to learn and the part of it. That's that's what I think of it. Jaehyun, let me invite you in. Any any thoughts on this? And and I'm particularly interested in this idea that there was stigma attached somehow to dying from COVID in, in South Korea? Oh, uh, in my opinion, uh, I thought that the major, some uh, newspapers or those companies doesn't actually share the arbitrary. They also, uh, they just share uh, how many people are dead by COVID and those like impact topics, like no no any special uh, events for individuals, mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, I also just found uh, read this obituary. At the, it is the first time to me to read those obituary, and 
I think those uh, articles might should uh, share for our uh, people a lot more to like feel and to understand their feelings, the victim's feelings. Mm -hmm. Is it part of, uh, is this part of a sort of sense of privacy around death and families more generally in, in Korea that it wouldn't be, it's not generally done to um, share this kind of information about a loved one after they've died in a newspaper? And I ask this because um, as a faculty member of KAIST, I regularly get emails from faculty members in departments, people I've never met before, in which they're actually asking for blessings for a member of their family who's died. So I never experienced that in the United States. That That's a form of sharing that it's very personal that I never experienced. But then the obituary culture in the United States is very, it's very deep. I mean, it's pages and pages in newspapers historically full of obituaries. It seems, seems quite different here in Korea. Jae-hoon, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Uh... Yeah, uh, I think it's the difference of Western culture and Eastern culture. I also explain this point in the class. Uh, it's got professor of running. Uh, I think the culture difference, the main point is about thinking about individuals more or think about family or the group people more. In Asia, especially Korea, I think, uh, uh, we are thinking about more group activities, like more hanging out with people and more thinking more about the reacts with some, some others, not for our personal life. That's, uh, that's why those emails from the faculty members, uh, wanting to bless some, someone else. I think those, like, those are good events. Like make people happy, but on the other hand, in the other hand, uh, obituary some uh, things are quite sad events, and I think uh, people don't want to try to see those things for their own. Like uh, it can happen. I I just have to see where, when it came up in the news, but not for my not for my own i i wouldn't find with my own hmm. that's interesting um cultural comparisons there thank you junhai just to come back to you before we move on to the next part of our discussion which is that um right now day by day um uh, unfortunate records are being broken in south korea numbers of deaths from COVID are higher than at any point in the pandemic and i I wonder if you think that somehow memorial culture will change as a result of that. Maybe not obituaries, because that doesn't seem to be, you know, uh, culturally uh, the sort of normal way that memorial works. But I wonder if we may be in a moment of some sort of cultural shift and with COVID being kind of at the center of that. What do you think, Juna? There will be change, but I think it would be very difficult to, we can see the confirmed patient as a kind of criminal because we, in Korea, I think we still think that who get COVID-19 is their fault. So they ain't giving some kind of damage to nearby people. So unless that problem solved it, and I don't think that anything would be changed in my opinion. Wow. 
I just want to remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls. It's a special episode of COVID Calls in which my three guests are Jun Ha Yoon, Sung, Chun, Sung Chan Choi, and Jaehoon Kim, all students of KAIST. And I'm going to do something that uh, I haven't done much on COVID Calls. I'm going to surrender the microphone now uh, to Sung Chan, who's actually going to ask me some questions. And uh, then after we talk a little bit, then... Uh, We'll turn it around, and I'm going to have some questions for the students as well. So, Sunshine, we've had a few guest hosts on COVID calls, and uh, they're all brilliant people. And I'm glad to add you to that that group, and as well Jaehun and Junha as well. So, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> oh, oh my God! What, what should I say? But okay. So, welcome to as a cust- welcome to as a customer of the COVID calls. In 387 number. Thanks for joining our COVID course, Professor Gabriel Connells. And our first question in our team was, it's very, very simple, but just for, for in case, where are you calling from and what is the pandemic situation there? Just for the listeners. Right. So um, I'm in my office in the N4 building on the KAIST campus in Daejeon, South Korea. And um, the overall situation right now, I checked just before we got on, 7,100 cases, new cases of COVID-19 confirmed in South Korea yesterday, uh, 57 deaths yesterday. So the trend then do lines... You feel, do you afraid of it or, or feel safety in Korea rather than USA? How you feel? Well, I, it's that's a really interesting question. Um, I have felt safe here throughout. Coming from the United States, which I did in February with my family, with my wife and my two sons, um, it was the first time when we left our house to go to the airport in New Jersey last February. It was the first time, I mean, we had been out of the house, but it was the first time we'd like gone out and been in the airport. I mean, because the case rate there was so terrible and so scary and no vaccination available at that time. Um, coming to Korea, a place that I had been following very closely in the news, felt like a refuge, frankly. And I would point out that among the statistics I just quoted you, it's also important to know that uh, 80% of Koreans have now received two doses of vaccine. And that number in the United States right now, 60% of Americans. Now, it, it, overall, it's many more people, but as a percentage, there's... 40% of Americans are unvaccinated. Um, you're talking about um, 150 million people or so who are not vaccinated. So it's a really staggering number. So, um, yeah, that's that's the situation where I'm calling from right now. So, uh, so, so you've come from the South Korea in, in this year, February, right? Correct, is it? That's right. Then is there any reason you came at KAIST as a professor professor while enduring anxiety in the COVID-19 situation? It might be not easy. Is there any special reason or whatever? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so the, the job advertisement that first drew me to KAIST, to the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy, was first posted in the summer of 2019. 
Uh, so uh, people who are not familiar with academia need to know that there are very few medieval institutions left in the world, uh, but academia is one of those. <laughs> things move incredibly slowly and have their pace of doing things. But um, yeah, the advertisement came up in the summer of 2019. Uh, I knew Keist well because I had been here in 2017 and spent the summer here with my family as a guest of this department. Mm -hmm. At that time, I was researching the Sewol Ferry disaster with uh, Professor Cheung John and a graduate student, Hyewon Kim. And mm -hmm. we were um, interviewing commissioners and other staff members from the first Sewol Ferry Commission, which ended inconclusively. And uh, so I already knew the department and when the advertisement came up, um, I was thrilled to apply. But then it was a very long process. And I was here uh, interviewing in December of 2019. And then I got on a plane and went home. And um, they said to me, well, you know, we'll, of course, there's a process. And if it goes well, we might want to bring you back at some point in January or February 2020. And uh, on the last day of 2019, the first COVID case was reported by the World Health Organization. And so, so the whole actually, process. Uh, so actually, yeah. the, the professor job, job opportunity was before the COVID-19 situation, actually. Correct. Uh, and, I got you. And so the whole search process continued. I actually was afraid, I haven't really talked about this much, I was really afraid that KAIST was going to cancel the position because mm -hmm. many universities in the United States did that. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and because it, maybe they felt they needed to preserve money or that they were worried that they wouldn't be able to carry out the search effectively, whatever it may be. So I started to see advertisements at Princeton and Harvard and other places canceling, and I thought, well... It was a nice dream, but I'll, that's, it's not going to happen. And then I got a call saying, um, let's, would you like to continue the interview process? And I'll never forget, I had an interview with Keist's upper administrators, and they were all around a table, all wearing a Zoom call, all wearing masks. And I was in my little home office in the corner where I always did COVID calls. I was dressed kind of like I am now. And... Uh, it was the scariest moment because usually in a job interview, you have an opportunity to read people's body language and you can, you know, you, you try to communicate yeah. who you are both verbally and non-verbally, but it was just like staring at the, the camera, the and star the chamber. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And all of these august scientists and engineers are, you know, they were very friendly, but of course with a mask on, you know, everybody looks a little bit like it's hard to read people, you know, at that point. So anyway. That's um, that's how that unfolded, and then we moved here in February of 2020. Uh, excuse me, February of 2021, this year, and uh, yeah, moving in the middle of a pandemic is not something I, we had to do two weeks of quarantine when we arrived, and then we I went straight to work as soon as I got out of quarantine. Mm. Wow, sounds very. It was a very interesting story, whole story of your how you get Kaist professor. Thanks for thanks for sharing that your experience for us. So next, uh, due to listening to your story, I have one my personal question for you. So, so moving your home and your family with moving with whole your home into the cut in, in South Korea due to the pandemic situation. Is there any difficulty due to moving that period? 
Was there any difficulty? Uh, I mean, it's a it's a really good question. Uh, I we couldn't say goodbye to people properly, mm. and I was at Drexel University for twenty years, so I had some really deep relationships and friendships there, and. Um, I think we all, well, you all haven't thought about this yet, but when you get to be, you know, my age and you work in a place long enough, you think in the back of your mind, you think, you know, if, if I ever leave, like, what is it? You go to retirement parties and you see how people say goodbye. And I had in my mind a certain picture of what, you know, someday <laughs> if I ever left Drexel, and I had a, you know, you, you want to embrace people. And my colleagues did some, a beautiful thing. They sent cupcakes to my home on the day of a party, but it was on Zoom. You and I, oh my God. I had, I had former students, I had colleagues, and I sat there and, and my family got on and I kind of sadly ate this cupcake while we <laughs> said goodbye on Zoom. And that was hard uh, to say goodbye that way. Um, in terms of the logistics of moving in the middle of a pandemic, um, as you could probably expect, the Korean government is was pretty thorough. Mm. Um, so I'll tell you one story. Um, at that time, the United States was doing no track and trace, never has been really. Um, and getting a, a COVID test was very hard to do. Uh, only over that winter was it were the tests more available. And Korean government stipulated that you had to have a negative COVID test within 72 hours of getting on a plane. Well, the way things work in the United States, you could get a test, but then they would give you a window of time in which you would get your results. And that window of time could be as much as three days. Mm. So we're trying to figure, okay, we're going to get on a flight. We've got to get our test, but we have to make sure we get our results within three days that the government of Korea requires. But we can't say specifically when we will get the result. And then there was a blizzard. And so the flight changed. And so everything is moving and changing. And I, my wife and I, it was almost like, I mean, having hourly updates and like had calculators out and trying to figure out, well, what time of the day should we get a test? And this, and my wife, who's more organized than I am, actually accomplished it. We ended up taking multiple COVID tests just so we would have one that was within the 72 hours. And at that time, you call, I called the airport to ask um, if we couldn't get a COVID test, was there something else we could do? And they said, yes, yes, you can get a COVID test at Newark International Airport. It costs $400 a person. $400 per person? Mm -hmm. so, so I was looking at potentially paying $1,600 to get our COVID tests before we could come. But we were lucky. My wife uh, managed it all, and, and we got our tests. And so that was; those were the kind of difficulties that we faced. Um, when we arrived, of course, we arrived in a very different COVID world. Um, you get off the plane, they take your phone, they put the app on the phone for you while you stand there. It, we went through station after station after station, documents, documents, stamping. Uh, you know, it was of course we're jet lagged. And by the time we got to the end of it, um, we were here, we were cleared, 
And for two weeks, I got text messages every day from the Korean government asking me to take my temperature. <laughs> was it was it suggested? Was it was it the the text was come by the English or is was it Korean? Everything was in English. Oh, everything was, was everything was translated. Much friendly. <laughs> yeah, and and I have to say also that um, my colleagues here in the in the department, uh, students and faculty, um, and the and the staff of the international office here at KAIST, they were checking in on us constantly. So I was getting phone calls and cacao messages and text messages people checking on us and then asking if we needed any help. So we had like, I had like an army of translators who were, <laughs> who were ready to help uh, if we needed help in those. That's very lucky. And then people brought us food at the quarantine location. We were at an Airbnb and uh, uh, I would get a call from a colleague. He would say, okay, we were there. Now we're, we're gone. Now come outside. And I'd go outside and there would be, a bag with food and uh, one of the students in the department uh, brought us ice cream. I mean, we were treated really well. I, so I have no real complaints about that time aside from being locked indoors for two weeks. But, you know. Wow. <clears throat> it's, it, it might be a very boring story, but I think that, that experience is quite unique because most of people never have chance to travel or move due to the pandemic situation, but however, you, you suffer almost like the, almost like the immigration process, almost like, not, not same as that. So it was quite unique and very, very useful to share all of us. So thanks for it. And my next question is, let me see, <laughs> what might be good? So in the South Korea, in the KAIST, what are the challenges in teaching about disaster during a pandemic? Is there any special point due to the pandemic situation? Is there any more? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, in terms of teaching, um, it's been it's been quite extraordinary. I mean, you know, um, students are just really switched on to this moment. I mean, it makes sense. People want to want to understand this world that they're living in. So I taught a graduate seminar in the spring when I first arrived about disasters. And then I had the chance to teach the class that all of us have taken together. Uh, student interest has been extremely high. I mean, we're all doing this remotely. So our experiences, I think, well, we've done as well as we can. I think we've done pretty well. Our our class had an opportunity to take a, a class trip to Ansan to see the Sewol Ferry Memorial and meet um, Sewol family members. That was that was really special for me at a variety of levels, in part just to go to Ansan, but also to be with you all. Because when you're a teacher and you're used to being with students all the time, you that energy is something you come to like rely on. <laughs> and uh Zoom doesn't always quite cut it to create. We do our best, but um, so that's been a bit of a challenge. But that's a challenge that every every teacher and every student has dealt with in this time. Um, I, I don't want to necessarily give an advertisement for disaster studies, but why not? I, I think it's a it's a field that um, it's sad that it's relevant, but I can't think of many fields that are 
I wish there were more people coming into this area of research. I think we need a lot more researchers in this space to understand the many different things that are happening to us every day. I mean, even just considering what's happened in South Korea in the last month, that the government felt compelled to move forward with a uh, with Korea with Corona strategy, opening up, letting people congregate in larger numbers. Um, you know, we need to have a better understanding of why the government thought that was a good idea, and then and how will they react now with these case rates going up so dramatically? It looks like they're going to close back down. Questions about why vaccines have not been made available to the five to eleven age group in Korea. I mean, we have a lot of questions uh, that need analysis, and I think Disaster Studies has a lot to offer in terms of of doing that kind of work. So um, I hesitate to say it's a it's a good time because it's not a good time; it's a terrible time. But the kinds of questions that are derived from disaster research, I think, are are relevant right now. Okay, sounds very terrific for my mind, but. Hope to things getting better and better. So about for the next, uh, this, this question is about why. Could you tell the story about the reason why you begin the COVID cause project for us? Could you introduce it? Sure. Thanks for asking that that question. Um, it's it's a little odd because I do COVID calls almost every day, uh, but I don't. I have not talked very much about why. I started the project. So let me just say a little bit about it. Um, in the in 2017, there were three hurricanes that hit the Gulf Coast in the United States in a short period of time. There was a moment when you could actually see multiple hurricanes if you were looking at the at the weather map. Multiple hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico moving simultaneously, um, and one of those hurricanes hit my parents' house. Oh. Oh they God. were living in uh, Port Aransas, Texas. They had moved to their, um, this was their retirement home. They had lived uh, where I grew up in Arlington, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas, Texas, where I was born. And um, I grew up there. They had lived there. And finally, they moved to the coast. This is what been my mother's dream forever, was to live at the beach. And so they did it, and they moved there in the spring of 2017. And, uh, and then that summer, Hurricane Harvey landed about a mile away, made landfall about a mile away from their house. Now, they evacuated ahead of time, but uh, maybe the storm surge on their street, I mean, it's sort of terrifying to think, you know, eight feet of the ocean were, was coming up their street into their garage, into their house. It did a lot of damage, shut down that community. And um, I made a trip to see them and visit, see the damage that had been done. And uh, it was really hard for them. And they it was too hard for them. And, and they couldn't really face staying there and rebuilding. They had just moved there, really. So um, they sold that place and they moved to San Antonio, where they live now. And... Uh, I remember, you know, at that time, of course, a lot of emotions and, um, but I wished, I remembered later thinking, I really wished I had done 
a lot of interviews. I mean, this is the historian talking. So like my impulse is like, well, let's do some interviews. Let's get some of this on the record so that we can understand it and that we can use it later as a way to make sense of what happened here. And I, I think I had tucked that idea away in the back of my head. There's one other thing, and this comes to the name of the project. So a lot of times, the, so I'm a historian. I work a lot with old documents, photographs, government reports. Um, I'm very comfortable 100 years in the past. I'm very happy to be in reading old documents. And, um, but I also am really interested in the ways that the past influences the present. And I frequently, when a disaster strikes, what I will do is call, make calls pick up the phone and start calling around, call emergency managers or scientists or journalists, people I know who know things about what's going on with the disaster. And with when COVID had already arrived in the United States, but when the lockdown started, which for me was March 16th, 2020, uh, when that started, I was planning that day to make a bunch of calls. I'm gonna, I had a bunch of people I was going to call just to find out what they were doing. And then ordinarily I might record those calls and use them later for my own research. But everything was moving on to Zoom. I mean, you all remember that moment where like every part of your life was now transitioning into a Zoom call. And I thought, you know, what if we, what if I just did the calls live? What would that be like? And so the first two weeks of COVID calls were actually more like um, webinars. They were like live, and people could tune in and then they could ask questions like they were participants, like a seminar, webinar. And then people were listening. And um, at the end of that two weeks, so that they told us, you'll be out of work for two weeks. And then in two weeks, you'll come back. Remember, everybody, they told us two weeks and then you'll be back to normal. And it was pretty obvious that was not going to happen. So at that point, I transitioned it to something more like what we're doing now, which is uh, a conversation with a guest or a couple of guests, and then to live stream those. Uh, I brought on board a former student named Bucky Stanton. Bucky is a student. Of, he was a student of mine at Drexel University. Now he's a graduate student at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. He's an STS graduate student there. Brilliant guy. And and um, he and I had some long talks about like how does somebody manage a podcast? I had never done a podcast before. And he, his attitude was, Knowles, send me the tapes. That was, and it was no more complicated than that. So I, so I started sending him the daily broadcasts, and he does, he still does the daily editing, puts music on, um, edits it, and then posts that to various podcasting channels. And then I discovered uh, Streamyard, which we're using now, which simultaneously streams it to Facebook and Twitter. Um, and, uh, Twitch also. So I thought I would do a hundred and then stop in the summer of 2020. And, um, but what happened is that the pandemic changed and the realities of the pandemic in the spring of 2020 were different realities by the summer of 2020. And there was a lull. And then the cases started to pick up again in that late summer. And I said, well, I can't, I shouldn't stop doing this. Now there's new information. And that has happened every time I've set a deadline that I thought I would stop doing this project. I just 
I kept doing it. I had um, uh, also the help of Shivani Patel, who's a student, a current student at Drexel University. So she joined the project and started doing the, she does the booking, so she helps me. A lot of times I, I spend hours reading every day COVID materials, and I'll pull, I'll take a screenshot of something off Twitter and I'll just email it to her and I'll, the subject line might be, I'd like to talk. <laughs> and, uh, and she will get the guests and, and her attitude is, uh, is one that we should all emulate, which is that if, if somebody says no to her, um, she always writes back and says, thank you. And we'll ask you again in a couple of months when you have more time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, she's worked very hard for the project as well. Um, so I, there's more to say about it, but that's how it started. That's how it's developed. And that's um, what's going on. Yeah. So the project is actually starts with a very small case, but it's now getting in, getting bigger situation. I, I, I guess so. So I hope you, I hope the COVID call should be done as soon as possible due to the, due to the end of the pandemic situation because of the end of the pandemic situation. Yeah. Yeah. But until the end, I think you have to keep tracing and keep making the, all the videos, all the tests for everyone everyone so i think the time we allowed is not too much so i'll just ask for our last question so for the future is there any direction you'd like COVID call to move forward but i i think it is actually in this situation you're broadcasting on several podcasts and also taping and making various way to take way to whatever you have to do, whatever you can do, but is there any your plan or make it much better and a lot of lot more of people could watch your COVID calls? Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, there's a few things I would like to have happen um, with COVID calls. One is um, I would like to, and I, this is a plan going into the new year, is that the emphasis, which has been still, even though I've moved to South Korea, the emphasis still continues to be a lot in North America. And so as I move into 2022, the emphasis will shift to parts of the world that have not had as many episodes. So um, discussions, uh, Latin America and Africa particularly, are areas where there'll be more guests coming from those. The other thing that um, I'm excited to announce is that pretty soon we will start inviting researchers to use the archive. So mm -hmm. the website with every episode, audio, video, and transcript will launch this month. And that means you could go to one place and search by keyword. All of the transcripts will be there. It's been, it's a phenomenal undertaking. It's been led by Eleanor Mays, who's a graduate student at Berkeley in the United States um, with the help of many other people so that's going to be, and, and what I would like to see happen is researchers to start using it um, as a research tool. Um, uh, so um, that's, those are the big ambitions as we go into the, 
into the next year. And I guess the other thing I will hope is that um, this comes back to what uh, Junha was reading before, talking about the problem of losing losing sight of COVID because of the numbers. We're all, we're we're overwhelmed with numbers, and humans don't do good with big numbers. They they don't. After a while, we we numb out to those. I'd like COVID calls to be an instrument of memorialization. I have such enormous respect for people um, like Alex Goldstein, Kristen Urquiza. I, they have been leading memorial efforts in the United States, and I'd like COVID calls to actually become part of the movement for justice coming out of COVID, and that means memorialization. So as always, I'm interested anyone who wants to participate and to help with that. And, um, but this COVID calls will be one tiny little attempt um, of a much bigger effort to understand what's happened to us and how we can sort of learn something meaningful from this time so that we don't face this kind of devastation again. Okay, thanks for your answering all of, all of our questions. So I think the our part is done and from now it's time to professor going to ask some question for us. Okay, great. Uh, I always feel more comfortable when I'm when I'm behind the mic than when I'm answering when answering questions. Um, I let, there's one other thing I just want to kind of get this on the record if it's okay. Um, and I forgot to mention this early in the COVID calls. Um, my kids were also doing school at home during that time, and um, my wife, who's a genius, um, early, very early when the pandemic broke out, she bought a ping pong table. And so an average day at my house was everybody gets up, has breakfast, goes to their own private rooms where they're doing school and work. Our house got turned into a WeWork station, just like everybody else's house. We were lucky that no one got sick. Nobody had to be an essential worker. So we had that. And then occasionally somebody would yell upstairs, ping pong, and you run outside and in the garage, the ping pong table would be set up and we had these fierce ping pong matches. And then at five o'clock, it would be time for COVID calls. And my son, Gabriel, my oldest son, um, he was the sound engineer for those first hundred episodes. So he was listening, sitting in the same room with me and listening. And I would always ask him if the sound levels were good. And, um, and then we would chat at, over dinner about what happened with the COVID call. So I, I meant to say that earlier, but that's a, such a strong memory for me of that early period of the pandemic that it was such a terrible time. But it was also such a powerful time of togetherness for my family. And the memory is, is complicated in that, in that way. So maybe with that, I'll just transition and, and let me, uh, uh, Jehun, let me ask you first, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory of your COVID experience. My personal experience during COVID situation, right? Yeah. Uh, let me think. Any special events? Oh, uh, it's not my personal. I've heard the uh, news from somebody else, my friend. Uh, in the early period uh, last year, I think it's like May or June, those periods. Uh, I saw news, uh, that some, uh, or, or one 
woman, an uh, old girl, wait, girl with similar to my age, and her mother trip to Jeju Island, and spread all those viruses in those island, and came back by airplane to Seoul, and that time they uh doesn't answer for any question by the government uh, about those spreading viruses or something. And so uh, the people are all shocked because they have no information in, in also in the Jeju Island and also in the people float with uh, together by airplane and also in Seoul nearby the, their house. And I found out that she, I met her, I know her, and I know her face, and like I had a talk several times, and I I was very shocked that those event like those actions are very bad things for all nation because they cover up those all for those useful informations to prevent spreading COVID viruses, but they just shut their mouth and uh, do, do nothing like, and uh, after that happened, people, so many people got COVID in inside Jeju Island and the, they also blocked several air, air, uh, airplanes. That was very, uh, that that event event was very shock for me. It's, it's. I mean, it must have been shocking to see. I mean, you all were experiencing the realities of COVID before anyone in the West, and to see episodes like that. I mean, it must have felt. I don't know. I mean, did it, were you afraid, or were you? What were your emotions at that time, Jay? Uh. Like, uh, also similar experience had in nearby my hometown, uh, the people from church, they just go inside and pray without mask and they spread mm. those viruses. And also they doesn't say anything for, uh, to the government. So I was just, uh, in, in the event, uh, the event in, in Jeju. I was just shocked and uh, why, why they're doing such things. They're, uh, such a bad actions for our all nations and their families or their friends, all, all the people. And after, uh, uh, the church event near, nearby my hometown happened, I just, I was very afraid and like never go, went out almost, uh, two weeks. Like, uh, that, uh, be, uh, beginning with that time, my hometown people got so much viruses those, those times. So, uh, it was very afraid period for me. That, that was the very, uh, hard time, the most hard time here by those COVID period. That incident with the church was in Daegu? No, no, no. Uh, Daegu event was the biggest one, the oh. most most popular one. But 
some small events happen all around I see. South Korea. Yeah, right. I see. Okay. Uh, Junha, let me ask you the same question about sharing a personal memory of the COVID time. What sticks in your memory? Well, COVID-19 gives very shocked memory to me because, well, I was the freshman last year. So it changed my kind of university life very unexpectedly because I luckily I was held the graduating ceremony because it was held in January. So I after I finished the graduating ceremony and have a trip to the Taiwan and when that that trip ends, then this kind of COVID nineteen situation in Korea started. And at the time that I was thinking like, oh, it has been a few few months to wait, then and everything will be okay. And I was, that was my first impression of the kind of COVID-19 virus, but it was, wasn't at all. So admission to get into the university dormitorium has been disappeared in the February, at the end of the February. And I've got the, that we're gonna start the semester a bit later. And I was, I was like, oh, I can go to this school at least, at least at the May or June in worst case, but that wasn't happened. And the first time to the school after the admission event was that this year. So I was never been to the KAIS that last year, 2020. So how can I, I, I never imagined that I could be the sophomore who do not know everything in the school. <laughs> no, not everything in, about geography. I don't know where is MPO and where is W. To and something just like this. I don't know where is bank, where is where is restaurant, or I don't know anything before this year. So I think this is the most thing that affected. And I would be like to meet lots of people if when I go to the when I come to the Kaist, but it wasn't come true at last year, and still people are just staying in their home. So I think it's kind of my this is the thing that COVID nineteen affected my life. When did you first set foot on Kaist campus? Well, after graduate, after admission, and I think it's April of 2021. Of this year, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think for people who may not be as familiar with uh, South Korean higher education, and the students are too humble to say so, but to get accepted to Kaist is a big deal. And uh, that first year, everybody who's privileged enough to go to college knows what it's like to show up in that first week and your parents say goodbye and there's a tearful goodbye and then it's the exhilaration. And you must have that in your mind, you must have been ready for that. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> yeah. And then your next thing you know, you're back home. Yeah. <laughs> or you're still I thought that some of students with my supporters have never been to Kite yet. I've yeah. heard that. Not me, but <laughs> so sad. Yeah. Well, and what about your family, Junha? Did it affect your family at all? Yeah, because my family is in abroad right now. My parents are in the Canada. So I think if, if there wasn't COVID-19 situation, I would be like to go there following them. But as you know, I cannot do anything like going to trap trip in the Canada or the exchange students are most they canceled and so so that I is still remaining in Korea. So which separates my family. That's the other thing.
Vice versa. <laughs> when did they move to Canada? Oh, this year. This year. About April. Yeah, April. I said. Mm. I see. Thank you for sharing those memories. Uh, Sung Chan, uh, same question to you, which you've asked me, but now I ask you. <laughs> uh, Share a memory. So while I'm listening to Juna's story, I I remember my some of unique experience due to the COVID-19. I never talked it before with anyone. So actually, I finished my military service in Korea at the 2020, 2020 in, in January 15. Actually, the, it was the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic situation. So at that time, only the, only the China was the serious situation. And the people in the, around the world now getting, is it really serious problem? They are now getting, it is really serious. And they, they now just beginning wondering the problem. And, the late of January, I traveled to the Moscow in the Russia. So I, I traveled to the Russia in, in the January 29 and until the February 8th, about 10 days with my the college student, college friend. So it was the first time that I have visited the Russia and there was very lot of Chinese traveler also. And most of the Western people might be, they feel hard to distinct, distinguish between Korean and Chinese. So a lot of the Russian just think of us as like a Chinese. So actually it was a little bit hard to travel for us. And at the time, the wearing mask culture is not really widespread in the time. So someone, someone's are taking the mask and someone was not. Actually, I was the people who didn't really want to take the mask. And also my friend, he was really want to take mask. So we just opposite side. So, and usually at Russia at the time, nobody was wearing mask, only my friend wearing the mask. So a lot of people looking at us, why they're in, why they wearing the mask. So <laughs> the time, that I can travel to Russia is very lucky because after a, after a week, the all airplane lines are canceled. Nobody can move from, from the flight, flight line. So it was very lucky and unique experience that can have a travel before the pandemic become, became the overall world. Yeah, it was very interesting actually. So uh, Junha got to go to Taiwan you were in Russia. I'm coming from the U.S. All these travels right before June. I, I just stayed in Korea. <laughs> <laughs> if you had known now, now what? If you'd known then what you know now, you would have been booking a flight in December, huh? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe not. I yeah, I want to go like abroad. I, I was planning to go like, uh, after the semester ends because the with Corona system have, has been started. Right. But like, uh, I infected like 7,000 yep. yesterday. So yeah. I'm afraid a little bit. 
And it's very hard right now. I mean, my, yeah, right. my wife and son, older son, were going to go because he's been vaccinated. They were going to go to Singapore because uh, Singapore and Korea have managed the pandemic very well. And they have a special relationship, travel relationship. But in the as you say, the numbers in the last two weeks in Singapore has gone through something very similar mm -hmm. are are startling. You know, for me, coming from the United States, the numbers in Korea for the whole country of 52 million people are what we're seeing in the United States in like medium sized towns. But it's the context within Korea because it's been so managed. It's alarming when you see the change so rapidly. Jayon, let me stay with you and ask you a question about um, how you perceive the government response to COVID in Korea. The government has taken a lot of credit for its response, and I don't think it's un uncalled for or unwarranted. I don't mean to be critical of that, but it has become sort of part of a, a narrative around Korea's ability to manage disasters. And I, I wonder what you think about that as a young person and a future leader in Korea, is this something like, do you think the government has managed it well? What would you see done differently? So for the overall management in like two years or such yeah. points, like overall things, mm -hmm. uh, I think like all, uh, 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 all, over the world, all over the world, uh, people are saying our country have been blocked COVID well. And that's kind of true compared to other Western countries, US, uh, America, Singapore, and New Zealand, and Korea. I, th those three countries are the most, uh, uh, the country has been blocked COVID well. But, uh, like, however, we can't, can't be satisfied at all. Like, uh, we can't satisfy all of the things. We have, we all, always point out some disadvantages and some bad points. And nowadays, those infections have been increased to 7,000 and those people, most of those people are young children uh, between ages between 11, uh, 12 to 17, those, those students. And the, the why those students uh, get affected because parents don't want to actually get vaccine to their children because of the dangerous things like the side effects of the vaccine. But, uh, actually, uh, today, like, uh, 3 p.m., like, um, four hours ago, government briefed, uh, to suggest get vaccine for young children. It's okay, better than older people, less side effects. And, uh, those, like, uh, Getting vaccinated, lots of people, uh, those managements have been succeeded well, very well. Like the boat, uh, did the best way. I think it, it was the, uh, best way to prevent those COVID situations.
that point will will uh, I think it's the best point our country did well. I uh, I think you've shined a light on a really important and interesting point there, which is that um, co compared to some other countries, Korea was late in getting its vaccination program started. But if you look between July and November of this year, it's extraordinary. I mean, to get to 80% in such a short period of time. But then, as you point out, there's this important age group, which also happens to be the school-going age group in that 12 to 18, where the vaccine uptake, although it's been authorized, has been slow. And so that's an issue that the government's now going to have to really address. And then the 5 to 11-year-old vaccination as well. Juno, let me um, ask you the same question. Anything that you might point to in, in the way that Koreans and the government or anywhere in Korean society have reacted to the pandemic? Well, I, I never, there, there might be less of definition of success. And I think Korea has assessed from the point of view that keeping people safe, kind of intensive, very intensive distancing and it has re resulted in very fewer COVID-19 case, positive cases and deaths. But in terms of our freedom or some like other aspects, then we are very hardly, hardly controlled. So we, we don't, we cannot enjoy any life in Korea's kind of policy. So I think that real success or failure will be figured out through after this kind of with COVID-19 policy. That with that which have been started from the few weeks ago, and we are having some kind of trouble right now. But I I still believe that we can handle it out, and I hope so. And it could be done differently, but I never say that it will affect better or not. So in case of keeping people safe, I think it's success. But I think it's time to be different from now on. Hmm. It's uh, it's such an interesting point because the death, you know, acceptance of an increasing death rate is different culturally in different countries. I mean, there are almost 800,000 people have died of this pandemic in the United States. And so, I mean, I don't want to say that people are, um, there are many people who raise the alarm every single day, but it's just become a sort of normal and it's not been a normal in South Korea. So I think that's an interesting tension you're pointing to, is um, what will happen in the next month or two, and, and what death rate ultimately is acceptable in exchange for a greater amount of, let's say, freedom of movement, um, you know, people gathering in larger numbers, those kinds of things. The, the countries that have pursued a zero COVID attitude, like uh, you were mentioning New Zealand, uh, in Australia, I mean, they've been, Melbourne was in lockdown for 280 days, I think. Junha, just coming back to you on that, I mean, do you think that, that Koreans will accept a higher death rate going into the new year if it means being able to have more uh, sort of, as you say, more freedom and openness? Or no? Do you think we're moving back into a kind of lockdown phase? I think... In my opinion, yeah, after people are getting vaccinated, then our society might hold it. But I think Koreans, now the medias are very highly check checking this, this kind of numbers every day. And they are just saying that it's so dangerous and we cannot hold it. And so I think media has 
kind of bit very strong, uh, strong raise ad raising issues. So I think bit afraid of them, but I I want to have some kind of bit Corona system is better than before. But I'm not sure that the society might accept it. But I think there are lots of conflicts between them. I can see everywhere that who are, oh, we need to just, we have to live it like normally before the COVID. And some said that people are more, safe is more good, safe is more important. So people right. should distance as before, as before, before two years, by two, like two years before. But I, I think when people, I think, I, I don't think that people are, can accept this kind of highly distancing system forever. And I think yeah. that's kind of, is it became dangerous and more dangerous and one day it did come up. So I think it's time to change. I mean, even listening to you describe two, to say two years, it's just extraordinary when you think about it. That we're adapting our lives in this way and even what you've all been describing. You know, Normal things, uh, travel, being together with family, first day of school, graduations, everything, just to adapt those and, and then have no ending point. It, the, the psychological toll is, uh, is tremendous, I think. I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Jun Ha Yoon and Suk Chan Choi and Jaehoon Kim today and this very special episode in which I got to talk a little bit too, which I really appreciate. Um, we're going to wind up now. I want to sort of one question I'd like to, um, ask each of you as we as we finish up. So, Chen, I'm going to ask you first this question: Is there anything that you do you look at the world differently now? Is there anything that you want to know now? If your interests changed, has has this episode reshaped who you are in any way, or or are you looking forward to with Corona and put this time behind you and get back to the life you were leading before January of 2020? Hold on a second. The question is too big. Hold on a second. Uh, well, while you're while you're thinking, let me throw the question to Jaehoon, and then we'll come we'll come back to you because it's really a, it is a big question. You know, it's it's, and in disaster studies, it's a question we think we wrestle with all the time. Do disasters actually change society or not? Are they are they really moments of continuity, or are they moments in which people fundamentally change who they are in society? Changes. It's not fair to ask such big questions, but I am curious to know because you're all deep thinkers what you think about it. Jaehoon, what do you think? Uh, I think the humanity is an animal that can adjust all those situations and being proved well. So, uh, if Corona, uh, those pandemic have has been end a short moment then nothing would be changed a lot before those, those events. But it has been two years and I think it could be go on more. So, <laughs> and like uh, among those situations, so many techniques, the metaverse or the archiving system has been uprised in Korea like uh those uh medias are focusing on those archiving systems and also we are students now so the the zoom system online class system has 
uh, has been improve our life to like listen uh, to the uh, the classes different in, in different places. So uh, I think we have to improve our life more with those in, uh, techniques using those techniques and for me uh uh like i've been staying in my home a lot because of covid and i was thinking uh like uh to think about more personally like no with without any other for my future life like having more time with my dream or something yeah i think uh we all have to change our life uh uh life uh happening more yeah hmm. yeah thank you for that uh so chan what do you what do you think just to come back to you on this and and then i'll i'll give junha the final final word so due to suffering the these times saying nothing change might be liar so one thing what i think the most change in the world now is the law of the jungle is getting stronger than before for actually it's for a long time the human civils are trying to not being as the it is jungle not forced by the power but so that why that why we make, make the laws, but we make the culture. That's the way how to we try to live together. But during these two years, the whole the ecosystems are changed. So the law of the jungle getting stronger is the most impact for me. It's really interesting. I. Uh... You're, you're both describing a lot of change, <laughs> uh, in the way that you look at, in the way that you look at things. And of course, why wouldn't you? Junha, let me, let me just give you that question and maybe be the final word on this. How, how COVID has changed you or, or not? Or, and how maybe, you know, do you see broader changes in society and your own interests in that society somehow shifting over this time? Or is it just going to be two years, you pack it away and move on? Well, Sing-chan and Jae-hoon told me so great things, so broad things. So I just be see kind of narrow expectation for me. And so I, I think I changed kind of personal experiences, personal interest is a little bit changed. And this is the one of the reason why I'm taking the kind of STP class. Because as I could see in the, before when I was COVID, when I was experiencing COVID-19, then I felt like the science and policy are not very directly engaged together. But after COVID-19 and I'm listening to the variety of STP classes, then I, I could imagine like science and technology and policies are very closely related because kind of you might know that every everybody will hear about the how vaccination works and how the mRNA vaccine and the ordinary vaccines are different. And we or have all listened to them, even if persons who are not interested in science and how can the quarantine works and what is the COVID-19 virus and what is the mutations and so much like scientific words are coming to the public. 
then I I've I've could see that it is very important to linking up the kind of science and the public and policies are very important. So I think this is the one thing that I have changed my sight through the COVID nineteen situation. Okay. Uh, and STP, for those not familiar, is Science and Technology Policy, which is the uh, program that the course that all the students have been taking is in, engaged in. And I just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me at 6 p.m. Eastern Time Thursday, which um, so we're on Korea time right now, so it's 6.25 p.m. Thursday here. But for those who are in the East Coast, 6 p.m. Eastern Time Thursday. When I talked to Dr. William Lee, who's a specialist in nutrition, and we'll be talking about COVID and nutrition. And I uh, want to thank my guests today, uh, Sung Chan Choi, Jaehoon Kim, and Jun Ha Yoon for contributing in this, to this conversation and contributing to this archive and for really opening up your own thoughts and your own personal history throughout this time. Thanks to each of you for this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for joining our interview, Professor. Enjoyed it very much. Uh, stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.